Hi, welcome back to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. This is episode 10. So uh, last month we spoke to Neil McIntosh, uh, Managing Editor of BBC Online. Uh, and in this episode we have another great guest, uh, Kenneth Mickelson, uh, who's the lead author on The Neo Generalist. Uh, and more on Kenneth uh, in a few moments. So today is the 20th of July, uh, August, just around the corner. Um, uh, Rory and I have been, you know, both been pretty busy. We haven't seen each other much. He's currently in Greenland, um, going back to his roots. He was actually, you know, living with Eskimos when he was a kid uh, with his pioneering parents and family. And he's actually back in Greenland just now on a leadership development program uh, with, a, with a Chinese company. Um, I'm just back from the Alps, which was a, an amazing experience. Uh, I'm going to write about it in my uh, column next week with the European Business Review, um, europeanbusinessreview.com, uh, and you'll find a lot of my articles on there on, on McGregor and Executive Health. Uh, but I was there with Aberkin, so Aberkin, um, part of the McKinsey Group, uh, involved with leadership development, uh, and I was uh, trekking for a couple of days in the Slovenian Alps and uh, with no mobile device or watch indeed and, and many exercises there out in the, in the wilderness as they called it right and even a solo sleep in the forest one night amazing experience really powerful uh, personal journey uh, for myself and, and for the other six or seven on that so Aberkin are doing a lot of innovative things in that space um, and I hope for for you all as, as August um, comes along that it is a time to really decompress uh, wherever that may be if it's the beach or the mountain or just in your own home or uh, on vacation somewhere that you take a time to reflect on on, on your life the, the, so far this year and and you really get a time to really uh, slow down I think that's important for everyone right um, so the book um, you know Chief Wellbeing Officer in both English and Spanish is on full release. Um, uh, we have a, a kind of temporary website on the, the webpage of the Leadership Academy Barcelona. So that is thelabcn.com and you'll see a link to all the purchase links uh, on Amazon around the world. Uh, Amazon seemed to, to be caught by surprise with the demand and it was in and out of stock um, quite frequently so far this month in July, but it seems to have settled down. Uh, Rory and I had the first book launch event at the Telefonica Movie Star Centre in Barcelona at the beginning of this month, which was a lot of fun, uh, and we're hoping to do more in the coming months. New York is a possibility in October. We're going to do the Aula Magna in IE Business School in Madrid uh, in early October also. Uh, Santiago Iniguez will be uh, be chairing that that meeting and look we're, we're both really looking forward to that and then hopefully do another couple of events in London and Scotland perhaps over August and, and maybe reboot in September with another event in Barcelona audio book should be out also in uh, the beginning of September with any luck um, and uh, yeah you know reviews are starting to come in on Amazon uh, on Goodreads also and we'd be delighted to to hear from you if you if you buy the book, what did you like about it? What didn't you like? What would you like to see? Uh, and and it'd be great to to hear from anyone who wants to to talk about what 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 we've put into that to that book, right? And a lot of the the same intent that we've had in the nine episodes in the podcast so far. Um, 
So Kenneth Mickelson, uh, as I as I mentioned, you know, you author on the neo generalist, uh, and I've really liked a lot of Kenneth's approach as I got to know him over the past year, and I'd long had him uh, noted down as a guest on on this show. Um, you know, he's 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 a Dane, uh, but he, he's travelled extensively and he's done a lot of really interesting, innovative work. Um, and incidentally, the neo generalist is the same publisher as Chief Wellbeing Officer, so that's Lid Publishing. Um, highly recommended the book. I've got about 50 pages to go. I've been reading that the last week or two. Um, so in this, you know, we talk about what is a neo-generalist, right? You know, and, you know, essentially you, you can listen to Kenneth in, in the podcast, but it's about, you know, it's the continuum, it's, it's against hyper-specialization that we have more and more in today's world, about people having multiple uh, professional identities. And it's something that I've... Um, connected with myself, right? Just having a background in design and doing many different roles as a as a as, as a teacher, as a as a researcher, as a speaker, and an author uh, in in my career the past ten fifteen years. Um, but we talk on many interesting things, um, and and Kenneth talks about you know life wide learning. It's not just about lifelong learning. It's about you know uh, really having that breadth of knowledge uh, and exploring in different fields. Uh, the importance of even things like curiosity that we touch upon also in, in Chief Wellbeing Officer. He talks about hacking your own education. You know, we talk about the future education system and what needs to change. Uh, and also the importance of mental agility, right? Just um, in, a, in a longer life, uh, we are not just stuck within one role within an organization. That's the neat and tidy thing to do and having a label. Um, and it's maybe the more comfortable thing to do. But he talks about how a neo-generalist has to uh, change. Uh, and I think if there's one big thing that came out of our conversation, it's about, you know, it's knowing thyself. I think a neo-generalist really does um, pay attention to to their own uh, humanity, their own passions, uh, and, 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 and manifest that in, in terms of their own purpose, right? So it's not just about who you are in terms of what the company says, but it's who you are in terms of what you can contribute to, to society uh, at large. And if the neo-generalist is someone who is perhaps on the edge of society just now and very much in the minority, then I think uh, in the future and in the future of work with all the disruption and change that we're seeing, it's going to be more and more important in the future uh, and very much a part of the mainstream. So that is, is it for me. Um, wishing you a fantastic summer. You know, maybe Rory and I will pop back at some point during August, uh, but certainly in like September, when everyone starts kind of really getting back to work again, uh, we'll be around with episode 11. So here we go. This is episode 10 with Kenneth Mickelson, and this is The Neo Generalist. Enjoy. Ciao. So hi, Kenneth. Uh, welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So, um, first question, what is a neo-generalist? Mm. <laughs> well, a neo-generalist is, is someone who is both a, um, both a specialist and a generalist, but has a preference for being in a space uh, where they can combine all the things they know. Um, so, we, um, uh, together with uh, my co-author, Richard uh, Martin, I wrote a book called The Neo-Generalist, and one of, one of the things we, um, 
we looked at was that we found that the ways of looking at specialists and journalists were very confining and maybe also not really adequate for describing the kind of people that we, we wanted to write a book about. Um, so often you have this binary, um, um, you could say, uh, separation between what it means to be a specialist and a journalist. Um, and we drew um, sort of um, an infinite loop to illustrate that we, as human beings, we can we can we can move in and out of uh, specialism and journalism depending on the context um, throughout our lives. That you might actually choose to study a PhD for a certain period of your life, to hyper specialize for a period, and then move back out of that and go into a more generalized role. Um, um, and I think. What is important to recognize is also that the term of a new journalist is a very inclusive one. So we, on the uh, infinite loop or the continuum that we drew, um, we, uh, we include all the other terms that are sort of used in, in this area. So being a T-shaped person or, you know, a multi-potentialite or whatever. Um, and, and for us, it was important to illustrate that there is a need for these kind of people because they're often really good at the things that, that companies um, look for. So be, be it uh, building bridges in companies, uh, crossing silos, um, they're very adept at um, cross-pollination and, and combinatorial creativity, taking one idea from one, one field and applying it somewhere else, um, building on innovation uh, from one area. And I think there's, you know, in terms of in terms of being a neo-journalist, it's very much about your identity as a human being. That you know, we used the example of T.S. Eliot with a sort of showing fragments that we are all made up of all these showing fragments. That recognizing that I think is uh, is something we need to be better at uh, encouraging in companies. I think it's often and often an overlooked um, thing. I, I, and you can even ask you maybe. I, I don't want to go too far, but I think the, the natural next question is then why do we need these people? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that maybe our book was a bit ahead of its time, at least that's the sense I have, that, you know, it, it sort of takes on some of the um, developments in the world right now. So, you know, the idea of having a portfolio career, that you're not just fixed in one career, but it's also about, you know, we have to change jobs more often. Uh, yeah. most likely in the future work is becoming way more hybrid so that means for instance if you are a surgeon uh, surgeon, you have to also be able to master um, digital technologies because doing surgeries today is also about you know knowing enough about technology to really use it in a helpful way Yeah. Um, and I think it is pretty obvious also today that we need maybe a bigger perspective on things so rather than just focusing on either or solutions to some of the big challenges we have in the world, like climate change. We, we need people who really have a broad perspective on things. Um, and often, new journalists have that because they've been involved in so many things in their lives. They've been beginners all over uh, many times. And they also have a deep respect for different areas because, you know, they tried being this beginner um, and know how hard it can be and know that it can bring value to organizations to not just be a one-trick pony. Yeah, um, and I think that's the thing in organizations, right? There's a rush to labeling 
and and we feel more comfortable when when we have a label and even as an individual right because i think when we first met last year um in kuwait um so i was giving a talk on on design and i i think you identified a bit of a a neo-generalist in, in, in my own career path, right? And I even had I've even had that discomfort over the years. Um, you know, people have asked me and even in my family, you know, what do you do? And and it's not being a it's not been an easy answer. And I see that that's in the back of the book as well, right? Have you often, you know, have you had have you encountered difficulties describing what you do to other people? And I've had that all my life and careers it's changed and pivoted. And I remember one time even I was at a party even 10 years ago, but I, I did very much have a very portfolio um, career, multiple professional identities. And someone asked me, what do you do? And I said, various things. And the person laughed and they said, what, are you a drug dealer or something, right? As if I was trying to hide <laughs> what I was doing. But, you know, on a more serious note, because I studied design, then I felt I felt comfortable with what you've just said. And, I, and I, I'm reading the book right now. You give me it several months back, but I thought I, I better dig into it as I plan to interview you for this. I've got 50 pages to go. But what it did is it made me feel better about myself, right? Because it, I felt that I wasn't just on my own and in, in, in finding difficulty in that labelling. So labelling isn't everything, but if someone asked you, Kenneth Mickelson, what, what do you do? How, how, would you, how would you describe that in a short, in a short answer, <laughs> if you can? Yeah, you know, normally I ask people, how long time do you have? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think as a journalist, it's important to get your narrative straight. We use the example of a chimera to describe that, yes, you can be one thing in one context, but you can also be something else in a different con context. So when I get asked that question, I normally tell people, I live in more than one world. And it sort of triggers their uh, curiosity because what do you really mean by that? Um, depending on the context, it gives me an opportunity to talk about the things that I, I believe are important to talk to that person about. So if I'm in, um, I mean, I do voluntary work with children, for instance, so I can't come in with a narrative about being a business person because it's totally irrelevant. And when I do executive development, it's more focused on, you know, um, the leadership aspect of things. So I think what I've learned is that, I, that you need to really work on your narrative. So when I, when I say I live in more than one world, I, I normally follow it by saying, you know, I help people live meaningful and, in, and informed lives and, and make some wise decisions um, that benefit our society and also leave a positive legacy for future generations. Now, that's so broad that I that it basically encompasses everything I do. So I, I write. That helps people make, you could say, uh, give them a broader perspective on life. But I also do speaking at conferences. I design leadership development journeys uh, and, and, you know, being a learning designer, basically. Um, and then I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. I do um, mentoring for young people, uh, pro bono, because, you know, it gives me a sort of a... Um, a feeling for the younger generation, and it's my way of paying back. Uh, so I take in two or three young people every year that I mentor for free. And you know, my intention is to bring those people together so they can have conversations, so they're not dependent on me. And so you can you can easily hear it's not a it's, there's no simple answer <laughs> yeah. to that question. But it's interesting because I think what what you're talking about is um is your 
personal mission or, or perhaps purpose. And, and, and we've talked about purpose in several episodes of this podcast so far. And I think it will become more important in the future. But to me, that, that just makes more sense. When, when we describe what we do, it shouldn't be about a function. It should be about kind of why we are doing it. And, and if you can define that into a purpose, which and that, and that purpose changes depending on the context, as you said, then, then I, I think that's a pretty good way of going forward. Um, there's one part in the book I just, you know, linked to what it's like to, to, to be a, a neo-generalist. I'm kind of near the end, so halfway through chapter nine, and there's one part, because I, I do like kind of Sherlock Holmes and things like that in the detective part, but there's a part that said, uh, this kind of detective usually lives on the edge of society, which allows them to bridge between different social strata. They are connectors moving fluidly through their network from edge to center, from center to edge. They ask questions, converse and observe. And I really like that. Um, and again, identified with some of those things in, in, my, in my study of design. But the part I want to ask you about is that it says usually lives on the edge of society and giving, you know, that you're a neo-generalist yourself, you interviewed maybe 40 or 50 people that you think, um, you know, uh, fit with that definition. Uh, do, do, does the neo-generalist live on the edge of society? You know, should it become more from the edge to the centre or is it just always in movement? What, what, what do you think of that? Is it, is it a niche area just now? The short answer is yes. I think um, in one way, you know, we, we use the expression of a detective because it's sort of using a magnifying glass to sort of find out where are the stuff that needs to be addressed. So that chapter we wrote there is basically about perspective in life. And it's, you know, from moving between different areas and different domains in their life um, that the sense we got from interviewing the nearly 50 people for our book was that this way of, of, of or this movement uh, always sort of um, gave them a, a fresh perspective, but it also meant that they had to deal with um, always being more or less the outsider. Because if you do more than one thing, you can't just claim to belong to one group. Um, so what we what we're talking about here is, you know, not only being a detective but also partly being an explorer. And sometimes when you move out into unexplored territory, you know, you're in a space, and, and we use the term of um, white noise. You know, when you when you when you turn the dial on an old uh, FM radio. That noise in between, where you where you're in between channels, uh, trying to figure out what is up and down here, where do I need to go from here, and being comfortable with that ambiguity, I think is something they are because they have done this partly or to to a certain degree throughout their lives. So they are not that scared about being in a place where they don't fully know where they're going. Um, but it comes back to your point, I think, about having a purpose in life. Of course, that's important. And I think my personal observation is that, that most of these people have done the heavy lifting in terms of thinking about that, because they were, they were sort of been forced to do that, um, because you need to have something, sort of a steady ground under your feet. And I think that comes from having a deeper understanding of who you are as a person, what matters to you. Um, where you want to go, how you want to apply yourself in the world. Um, and also knowing that, you know, I think, I think one, one expression we use 
to, to sort of um, to describe the new gymnasts is also that they are stewards of important conversations. So stewards of the future, I think we need the new gymnasts in order to to have the important conversations we need to have to shift the narrative in the world. So I, when I do talks at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm working on something, I, I sort of framed it as the radical renaissance. It's sort of, where do we want to go in the world? So um, the other day when Barack Obama gave a talk in relation to um, Nelson Mandela's uh, 100th uh, birthday, you know, he was talking about humanity. He was talking about the important stuff. You know, he was talking about universal values, things that were not up for negotiation, um, things that, that, you know, we built our institutions on, but that I think is pretty obvious to most of us is, is there's an erosion going on right now with Trump, with Brexit, you know. Um, I call them trumpeters of nothingness, you know. Hmm. People who are just talking and, you know, they can bend the truth. They're sort of mental prostitutes that would say anything and do anything to keep their position. And I think that that major conscious shift that we are right in, in at the moment, I think the, and it comes back to your book, I think also, you know, when people express a deep need for belonging, a deep need for purpose, meaning, we talk about engagement in companies. We talk about well-being. But where does that come from? I think it comes from this ongoing consciousness that we sense that what we thought was working doesn't really work anymore. So we talk more about these things because we need to anchor ourselves somewhere. Um, so I think it's just an expression of where we are in society right now with this ongoing uh, consciousness. And, you know, when I, when I, as I see it, a lot of, Organizations talk about the need for uh, transformation, uh, the need for digital transformation, for instance. I think it's just shallow thinking and lazy thinking to talk about that. I think there's a much deeper need for change, and it incorporates, incorporates a, a mind shift, a skill shift, a behavior shift, and also a system shift. Mm -hmm. But most often when companies want to adjust and adapt to a new reality, they work on the shift and shift. They call in the McKinsey guys to work on their system. They put down a model on top of the organization and to cut away all the fat. But that's easy because that's the things you can put into a spreadsheet. That's what rational people can can argue that, you know, this, these are the things we need to do. All the messy things, the mind shift, the skill shift, the behaviors that we need are the things that are intrinsically human and therefore also difficult to deal with. No, absolutely, Kenneth, and I and I like that you know stewards of important conversations and and stewards of perhaps deeper conversations, right? You know, we become kind of dopamine addicts um, to kind of sound bites and messages the last 10, 10, 20 years, you know. And um, I think we need to embrace more of that messy world, right? And even some of again, you know, teaching design over the years to kind of MBA students. They, they feel safe within their rational thinking and they feel safe within their labels and the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the path to, to solving problems. But design is about looking at that messy world, right, and looking at behavior. So you also talked about ambiguity. So those are some of the things that, we, you know, we are teaching in the, the last um, several months on, on digital or agile transformation is thinking also about some of these human behaviors that we can embrace, 
you know, more humility as a leader. We don't have all the answers. As you said, you know, surgeons may need to learn about new technologies these days and the whole specialist um, aspect is listening. Um, and, and as you also pick up in the book, the neo-generalist um, is sometimes, you know, let's say damn with faint praise, you know, the jack of all trades kind of label, you know, so you're not good enough to be a specialist, which is why you work in different areas. I also remember when I was studying or doing part of my PhD at Stanford, I met someone else who was doing mechanical engineering and they asked where I was and I said, well, I'm in the design division. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we call that light engineering. And there was that perception that, you know, you, you look at these aspects of multidisciplinarity and, and, and teamwork and collaboration and, 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 you know, the fuzzy front end because you're not kind of um, cerebral enough to, to look at the hard, heavy lifting of engineering, right? And, and, and you pick up on that in several aspects of the book. So, you know, linked to that, you know, ambiguity is one of those things that is increasingly common in this VUCA world uh, as a human being, ambiguity or ambiguous, uh, ambiguous situations aren't by their nature comfortable. Um, and and what, I've, what we've been teaching the last couple of months is that designers, as an example, are comfortable with ambiguity because they, they follow a path where that ambiguity quickly diminishes. And I think some of your comments on the neo-generalists, they, they've done the heavy lifting, as you said. They, when they go into some of these uncertain or messy situations, it's tough, but they know that there's a way out, right? So what I'm coming to here, being a neo-generalist and then relating to kind of well-being and things like that, you know, is it good for your health? <laughs> it, what, what did you find of those 50 people that you interviewed? You know, were they happy? Did they have a, a high sense of well-being? Were they, of course, they're driven people, but what's the good and the bad about living in this kind of world? Oh, I, it's not an easy it's not it's, it's not an easy question, uh, Stephen. In many ways, because yes, there are downsides to that. I think um, health-wise, I think it's um, you know it is tough not being understood. It is tough having to constantly explain yourself um, to provide um, proof of your value. So I think there are. I'll, I'll just come back to that. But I think you know, in order to understand why it is like that. I think it's um, maybe a bit of context here. You know, throughout the industrial age, we have sort of praised the specialists. So, you know, uh, back from Adam Smith, you know, division of labor is the, is the fastest, most efficient way of doing things. And, you know, so I, I think the pendulum has swung too far out towards specialism. And I think that's also why, you know, when we, why we have difficulties of, appreciating what it is those people do because there is no straight answer for that. Um, so it comes back to the to the point you made about, you know, dealing with, not with simple solutions, but things that are more complex than that. And when we talk about health being or, or well-being and health uh, in relation to neo-journalists, um, I found that most of these people we talked to were happy because they had an influence on their own life. Um you know, they were they were living with their eyes open. So uh, the analogy I often use is the, you know, from The Matrix, the movie, you know, do you take the blue pill or the red pill in your life? Um, do you live a life, um, you know, according to the status quo? Do you just, you know, um, buy into uh, the things and lean back in the sofa and say, well, I don't really have an influence on my life? Um, or... 
do you take the red pill and say, well, I do have an influence and I, and I, do, I won't stand for this. I, I'm, I believe I'm good enough as I am. Um, but well, knowing that when you take the red pill, you also end up going down the rabbit hole. And, you know, it's, it's confusing at times. But I think what really um, stands out for me is that if you, you can grow this almost like an affordance, that it becomes something you do without thinking about it. So in terms of a neo-journalist, I think it's important that they have some safe spaces in their life. And I think if you if you do the heavy work, and it's increasingly work that I do more and more, helping people truly understand themselves and working on their values and their purpose. Um, in anthropology, for instance, there's this term called liminality. Um, and liminality describes a rite of passage that you go from something old to something new, um, and it's a you know it's often a very uh, difficult place to be in, uh, and we've all been there. So uh, you know when we were teenagers, uh, becoming adults, there was an ambiguous place because and a, and, and a liminal state we were in because you know we were still children trying to make sense of the adult world. We still wanted the benefits of being. Uh, a child not taking responsibility and saying no to our parents and all that, but then again having to live up to new rules um, and new norms. And that space, I think, is something you can you can learn how to navigate in that. But it requires that you have a deep understanding of yourself. Um, I often use the term of um, of growing an adaptive life perception. So, and you know the. An adaptive life perception is the is basically the ability ability to anticipate and sense and analyze changing situations and then respond with a timely and accurate action. So you could say that you know it's also the capacity to um, to actualize emerging futures. And I think you know summing all of that up is that if you have this adaptive life perception, you're also really good at doing the mind shift, the skill shift, and the behavior shift yourself adapting to the context. I think when we talk about well-being, you know, I think there's a really deep, or there is a very deep or a huge difference between thriving and surviving. So I think most uh, neo-journalists actually thrive. They're not just surviving. Um, even though at times it can be difficult for them to find work or to get employed in, in companies because the companies don't have you know, um, system, they don't fit into the company or organizational systems in recruitment terms, for instance. Um, so the whole thing about having this mental agility, being able to deconstruct your perception of reality and then reconstruct it continuously, I think is important. I think that's what we, there is a huge need for that in the world today, that we don't just have one perception of, or your own perception of how are things, but that you can meet other people, you can understand the significant events in your life that shape you, that shape your belief system, and also understanding how people around you support that belief system. Yeah. So if you live in a bubble, how can you poke some holes into that bubble and let in some fresh air? Um, because that's the only reason or the only way we can understand other people and meet and bridge um, differences. And, you know, Trump is a good example of someone who's definitely not capable of that uh, yeah. at the moment. No, absolutely, Kenneth. And I think that, that mental agility uh, or that flexing will be even more important as, as we move into the future, right? So, 
you know, as you touched on earlier, it, it could be the book that it was a bit of ahead of its time. And even if the neo generalist is perhaps on the niche or, or, or in a niche or, or the edge of society just now, in the future of work and with all the changes that are happening and the disruption that's going to take place, then I, then I do see a future where it will become more mainstream. Um, and a lot of that is linked to things that you talk about, you know, you know that self-discovery, knowing yourself, you know, living your purpose um, and, and having deep impact, right? And, and, and that's not easy for the neo-generalist of today, but hopefully in the future it will be. So just to kind of finish off, in terms of the future... You know, are you, are you optimistic? Um, even looking at education, you know, my son is three. Um, I went to school in Scotland. He goes to school here in Barcelona. Um, I, I see some good things. Um, and a lot of the primary education, even that comes out of Scandinavia, for example, that you'll be well aware of in terms of project-based learning and all these different things. Um, so looking at the kind of the future generations and education today, you know, how do you see that? Any view on that? And just optimistic in general about the future or, or not? Mm. It depends on which day you ask me. Today's a Friday, so let's see. What's your what's your, fri- what's your Friday <laughs> so, feeling? So let's be let's be optimistic then. Well, let me let me first start out by saying I think the the educational system, regardless of where you find yourself in the world, is uh, lacking behind. Um, it's not because of um, that they don't that the people working within the system don't care. I certainly don't see that, but it's a it's a it's more of a systemic flaw. I think so. The the thing is that that most schools have become like a conveyor belt. You know, you put people in one end, and then you they end up somewhere else. And I think most people working in education today, they should not just be working in the system. They should be working on the system, on changing the system. And of course, technology is a big driver there. So um, I think for the world we're living. Uh, learning is the strategy. It's the only strategy because it's through learning we adapt, we become responsive, we um, we we figure out a new way to go. Um, but unfortunately, in many educational institutions, I don't see that curiosity. I don't. I don't. I see a lack of imagination. Um, I see many of these organizations, uh, institutions, being um, becoming more and more irrelevant, basically, because you can hack your own education today. Um, I think I think we have to... One thing that is super important, now you're talking about your son, teaching young people to become or, or to have this self-efficacy, you know, you being able to learn, become autonomous, self-directed learners, supporting their learning journeys, helping them grow a navigation system they can use that is really... Um, not just about uh, standard testing, or but actually following also their curiosity, learning in new ways, using digital technology to support that. Um, I'm a big believer in not just lifelong learning, but also life-wide learning. So life-wide means that we learn from different contexts. So that might be that you're a scout for a certain period of your youth. Um, you might have a uh, grandfather who's a big inspiration to you. Um, that we, we learn from so many different contexts in our lives. And I think it's more about, you know, having the respect that it, formal education is just one way of learning. Um, I'm very much focused on something called personal knowledge mastery. It was a term that was coined by Harold Jarkey, and I, and I teach this to executives. You know, how do you how do you seek the right information? How do you make sense of it? And how do you share it with other people? Um, and it's a very easy, understandable 
you could say, framework for helping people to set up filters um, that control the internet for the right information. You can connect with experts around the world. You know, you can have these important conversations with people from diverse networks from across the world, but also it can expose you to things that you didn't know that you need needed. Um, if you have time, I mean, I can just share with you stories from a recent story that, uh, you know, I was, I was called into, um, it was the head of a board for a very large company in Germany. So I, I got contacted by this guy and uh, he said, you know, we need you to come down and teach our CEO how to, uh, to do personal knowledge mastery. Uh, so I flew down to Germany uh, and I met with this guy. With this guy um, and the first thing that happened when I stepped in the door was that he said to me, he was you know, standing with his arms crossed and he said, I don't believe in digital. You are too young and you don't have a PhD. And so, you know, how do you, how do you take it from there? Um, you know, I, on the way to the office, I've seen that there was a really nice coffee bar next to the office. So I said, let's go for a walk. You know, you paid for me for my time anyway. So let's go for a walk. And we sat down on a bench. And then I started talking to him about things that matter to him in his life. I had to start somewhere else. So I asked him, you know, what's important in your life? What do you spend your time on? And it turned out that this guy was really into opera. So he would travel the world with his wife, going to New York, going to Vienna. Um, and they would have these deep conversations about why, you know, new plays and, you know, the importance of opera. Um, so I told him, okay, so... If you allow me to, then I can set up three of the best op opera sources on your mobile phone using an app. So would you like me to help you do that? And he said, ah, okay, so let's try. And, um, you know, I didn't hear from him for like three months. And then suddenly I got a call out of the blue. And he called me up and said, you know, Ken, I can really see how I can use this in my work. I have the greatest conversation with my wife. I'm the one who's in the know right now. And, uh, you know, it feels great. And, you know, would you like to come down and see me again? I'm ready now. Um, so sometimes we have to start out by finding out what is the most important things to people in their lives yeah. and then take it from there. And that's also, you know, why it's called personal knowledge mastery because you have to, you have to set this navigation system up yourself um, in relation to what you find important and what you need to, to know about no, that's great, Kenneth. It's been a really fascinating conversation and uh, many thanks for your time to talking to us today and wishing you the best in your own journey going ahead. Many thanks, Kenneth. Thank you, Stephen. And all the best to you as well. Thanks. Bye for now.